Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode number 67. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $240 each, and everybody's favorite LTB coins are trading at .000087 US dollars each. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me today as I podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee, with my trusty Siberian Husky Maxwell right by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. <laughs> We're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love talking about Bitcoins and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Longtime listeners, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for your tips. New listeners, we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome. On today's show, I am thrilled to be talking with Nick Pudar in Detroit, Michigan. Nick takes us on a journey to a place that very few people even know exists. That place is the Brain Wallet, where it is now possible to store a small or a large amount of Bitcoin wealth in your memory. Nick does a fantastic job of helping us understand the true dangers of Bitcoin brain wallets and the true value that they offer as well. Join us, please, on this terrifying and exhilarating journey into the mind. I also have a special treat for everyone today as I read the newest short fiction by the Bitcoin community's favorite author of fiction, Max Hernandez. This short story, The Song of Ashok, is a short but compelling tale of the trials experienced by a young man trying to escape a war-torn country with his family's wealth hidden in a song that he has memorized. And you guessed it, that song is a brain wallet. All right, listeners, today on the show, I am thrilled to welcome a brainiac, a gentleman who is going to tell us all about brain wallets, Nick Pudar, who is right now in Detroit, Michigan, if I'm not mistaken. Nick, welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Oh, thanks, man. And you are in Detroit right now, is that right? Yes, I am, yeah. All right. And uh, how's the weather there? We are experiencing uh, spring trying to arrive. What's the temperature there today? I think it's about 60 today. It was 84 last weekend, and who knows what it's going to be this weekend. We might even have snow. Who knows? <laughs> I hope not, but uh, yeah, spring is definitely on its way. So, Nick, I hesitate to say it, but are you a brain wallet expert? Well, I'd hesitate to say that, too. I'm still learning. I think everybody in this space is learning, but I've read a lot about it. I actually use brain wallets, not for very much money. It's very little, but I use it for really two reasons. One is it's really a great intellectual challenge, keeps the mind active. And second, um, it represents personal freedom. And I think that, uh, that those two reasons um, and all the learning that occurs um, as a result of understanding brain wallets, it, it's worth understanding. Yeah, you know, I first created a brain wallet back in 2011, and it was such a trial taking this person's advice and that person's advice and then thinking for a moment that I was going to learn Linux and get involved in that world and then backing out of that. And you know, when I was finally finished and I did finally create a brain wallet and I was so exhausted afterwards that I told myself <laughs> yeah. I'm never going to do another one. But it's still fascinating, of course, and for our listeners who want to create brain wallets, lead us on to victory here, Nick, and uh, tell us about brain wallets. Maybe start with uh, what is a brain wallet? Yeah, I think sort of at the very simplest level, a brain wallet is uh, a way that a private key can be derived from something that you have memorized. That's the very simplest way. So in other words, based on something that you keep in your brain, 
you're able to generate your private key and then have access to your Bitcoins. That, that's the simplest. Now, uh, the, the one thing to keep in mind is that uh, in the brain wallet world, this, this thing you keep in your mind is known as a brain wallet passphrase. So I'll be talking about a passphrase. And when it comes to brain wallets, there are, there are two truths. Uh, the first one is uh, that they are fraught with danger and you should never use them. Um, and if you do use them, you're going to lose your coins. All right, that's number one. And the second truth is that when used correctly, brain wallets are very powerful, very safe, and very secure. But the problem is, is that they're very hard to use correctly. So you have to really uh, understand what the dangers are. And a lot of experienced Bitcoiners out there basically adhere to truth one, which says, don't do it, don't do it. But I think, you know, my objective is to help your listeners understand what the basics of brain wallets are so that they know what's necessary to use it correctly and that they know what all the dangers are. And then they can decide what's right for them. And for me, you know, I said I use them um, for a very small amount of money, but it's more for uh, the intellectual challenge and all the learning that has that has emerged as a result of uh, you know understanding all these things. I don't know, Nick. This sounds too scary, man. I think we should stop the interview here, man. This just sounds too <laughs> scary. I, I can't go on, man. No. <laughs> no, well, for people who have never heard of brain wallets, uh, basically, Nick is saying, do you want to store your Bitcoin somewhere other than a piece of paper, somewhere other than your computer, somewhere other than with one of these exchanges? You can store it in your brain. You can store your Bitcoin in your brain with a passphrase such as Mary had a little lamb. But don't use that one, right? Don't use that one. Don't use that one. And we'll talk about some of the dangers, but... You know, anything that you can find online or on a book or anything that's been published, not a good passphrase. But again, I'll get into more of that later because people think that if they find something really obscure that it's good, I'll talk about that later. But, okay. You know, I want, to, I want to cover what the fundamental basics are. Okay. A couple of these things might be uh, known by your listeners, uh, but I think the four build together to really give you a deep sense of why brain wallets are powerful and why brain wallets need to be done correctly. So the four elements are understanding the relationship between a private key and a public address. So that's, that's one. The second one is understanding this term entropy. So brain wallet guys keep talking about, do you have sufficient bits of entropy? I'll explain that as well. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, we know that in the Bitcoin world, uh, there's lots of private keys out there. There's lots of addresses and people are concerned about quote collisions. Will somebody ever accidentally stumble upon my address and all that sort of thing. These are big numbers, and I, I, I've come up with an analogy that works for me um, that will help give you a sense of how big these numbers really are. And then the last basic element is sort of how do you go from a passphrase to a private key and actually create a brain wallet? So I'd like to touch on those four basic components um, first and then talk about the dangers. Okay, sounds good, man. All right. So, so first of all, I think a lot of folks know what, what private keys and public addresses are. And, and what, what you realize is that private keys are just random numbers. Um, these are big numbers. They're 256 bits long. Uh, that's binary. And, and for those who like to think in decimals and engineering notation, that's like approximately 10 to the 77th number of private addresses out there. Those private keys are converted into a public key using elliptical curve digital signature math. Uh, and it's a one-way process. And you can be secured that um, this public key uh, can't go backwards. You can't go from the key back to the private key. But then there's another step uh, where there's a couple of hash functions applied that uh, convert that public key into a public address. It's an additional hashing. It's an additional, call it encryption, of the public key. Now, the public key, and this is probably going into more detail than 
that I intended to and probably even understand properly, but what the public key is used when you're signing transactions, uh, that's all part of how Bitcoin works. But the address that we see that are on our smartphones that are in our, uh, that we publish to others to send money to, that's a public address that is, you know, ultimately derived from a private key. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's one component. All right. Um, the second component is this notion of entropy. Um, it's like bits of entropy. It's, it's a phrase that you'll probably hear a lot about. So in math terms, if those mathematicians that are out there, you basically take the number of possible combinations of something and you take the log base two of that, and that's how many bits of entropy you have. But let me give you a much simpler description. So take a single die from a, a, a dice in, your, in Las Vegas. It has six sides, right? Mm -hmm. So when you roll that dice, you have six possible outcomes, right? So if you write um, that number six in binary, which happens to be one, one, zero, you will see that you have three bits of information that are necessary to encode that many possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. So single die has three bits of entropy. If you take two dice, there are 36 possible combinations. And then when you write that in binary, it's, I think it's one, zero, zero, one, zero, zero. That's six bits of entropy. And if you continue to do this with 10 dice, you get 26 bits of entropy. And you need a lot of possible combinations of things to get a lot of entropy. And when we talk about brain wallets and passphrases, the objective is to have a passphrase that has sufficient entropy built into it. It's so long and complicated and random that um, there's a lot of bits of entropy. And again, we'll, we'll touch on that. So far, so good? Yeah, so you're basically saying you want listeners, if they're going to create a brain wallet, they want a passphrase that cannot be broken, that cannot be figured out, that cannot be guessed by any human or any computer in existence. I think you said it perfectly. You, you do not want a computer to be able to guess something, um, not because they can't guess it, but because there are so many possible combinations to have to try to guess that it's completely um, unfeasible that it'll be guessed. So that's, that's an important piece. And again, in a moment, that'll connect up to how you create a passphrase and how you measure the goodness of one. Okay. So there's this issue of like these really big numbers, all right? So these big numbers are sometimes hard to understand, and having a good analogy is important for me personally to understand it. And, you know, as we said um, earlier about going from private keys to public addresses, there are actually two to the 160th possible unique public addresses. Now... It doesn't actually sound like a big number, 160, but two to the 160, how big is that? Well, it turns out it's actually pretty big. Now, a lot of the analogies that I've seen before, um, I've been, it's hard for me to get a sense of proportion because a lot of these analogies have been very linear. Mm -hmm. I'm a more visual kind of guy, and I ask myself, is there a good physical volume analogy? Um, what, what might that be? So this is what I came up with, and, and uh, I, hope it, I hope it helps people get a sense of perspective. So I said, well, what if, what if a, uh, imagine a single small drop of water. Um, how much water would be equivalent to two to the 160th drops? Um, so my first thought was, well, what about all the water on Earth? Um, so when I used uh, Wolfram Alpha, uh, thank you, uh, Stephen Wolfram, uh, I calculated that that's not even coming close. I mean, that's only two to the 85th drops of water. Wow. So my next thought was, well, all right, well, that's just the waters in the surface of the Earth. What about a, a water balloon the size of the Earth? You know, how many drops is that? Well, it turns out that's not even close either. That's like two to the 95th drops. Hmm. So. I'm getting a little frustrated, so I said, oh, all right, what about Jupiter, the planet Jupiter, a water balloon the size of Jupiter? Because I remember reading someplace, you know, earlier that, you know, you can fit a 1,300-some 
Earth's inside Jupiter. Surely a water balloon inside of Jupiter should be good. Well, getting a little closer, it's only two to the 105th. So then I'm, I don't want to keep this silly analogy going. So I said, well, how many Jupiter water balloons do I need to have two to the 160th drops of water? And the answer is astonishing. You need 50 million billion Jupiter water balloons to have two to the 160th drops of water. Whoa, 50, okay, 50 million billion Jupiter water balloons? Yep. That, <laughs> I love that's it. Two, <laughs> that's two to the 160th drops of water. But here's the most mind-blowing thing of all. I said, well, how many Bitcoin addresses, public addresses, have ever been used? And I've, I tried scouring this online, and, and you know, the best I could find, we have some guys have done some blockchain analysis, and you know, they're saying there's like two and a half to three million of these things. And so I said, well, how much is two and a half to three million drops of water? That's about the size of a single bathtub. Wow. All right. Now, the way in which Bitcoin addresses are generated, they are equivalent to random numbers. And so these bathtub full of drops of water are actually scattered randomly amongst the 50 million billion Jupiter water balloons. And so the odds of somebody finding one and finding one with Bitcoin in it is, well, it's unfeasible. <laughs> And so that's the amazing thing. And that actually brings us to the last basic element that's actually very important to understand. Okay, before you get to that last basic element, I think I've changed the name of the band I'm trying to put together. Instead of calling it Satoshi, I want to call it Jupiter Water Balloon. <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Hey, by the way, I love that analogy. That really does give a great picture of it in the bathtub and everything. That was fantastic, man. Oh, thanks, thanks. Um, so the last element is sort of how does a passphrase become a private key? And so basically uh, a private key is 256 bits long. So we need some method of converting any passphrase into a random 256 bit number. And the standard approach that the brain wallet world uses is this thing called the SHA-256 hash function. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a mathematical formula that basically takes input of any size. It can be a word, it can be a sentence, it can be the contents of a book, it could be you know, uh, whatever you want. Um, and it'll generate a random 256-bit output. And there's some wonderful properties that SHA-256 has. And the properties include, so the same input will always give you the same output. So that's important because mm -hmm. you, your brain wallet will generate the same private key. Um, the output is indistinguishable from random, which means that if I take you know, a 50-page tomb of original prose that I wrote, and I enter that as my passphrase, if I just change one comma to a period, the SHA-256 output looks indistinguishable from the first one and indistinguishable from random. So that's an important property. Mm -hmm. And then um, and the other thing is it's impossible to go backwards. So you can't go from a random number to figure out what the passphrase was. And then the most important feature is that it's very collision resistant. In other words, I cannot find two passphrases that generate the same private key. So all mm -hmm. those things are essential components of mechanisms that convert passphrases to private keys. There are other methods out there, but um, you know, SHA-256 is actually a very, very good one. Okay. So now that we have the basics, what does it take to create a brain wallet? Well, there's actually a couple of great websites that I've used to play with brain wallets. One is bitaddress.org, mm -hmm. um, and another one is uh, bitcoinpaperwallet.com. 
Um, and actually, the latter one allows you to do BIP38 encryption of your private keys. And if you really want to do this for real, you can play with these online and just as learning. But if you actually want to do a real brain wallet, you're probably going to want to follow the standard security processes of getting the, the GitHub uh, HTML code and run it on a computer that's not connected and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the most important thing to do is to have a passphrase that's truly random and has a lot of entropy. And so people are very, very bad. Humans are very bad at creating random passphrases. Mm -hmm. People think they're clever. They're not clever. All right. <laughs> and so um, the, as we talked about, passphrases have to have sufficient bits of entropy. And it turns out that you know, there's a debate about how many bits is necessary. Some people say you need to have more than 100 bits of entropy. And if you remember, that's a lot of water on Jupiter. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, others are saying you've got to have more than 140. I'm in the camp. It should be more than 140. Now, there's a really good way to generate a truly random passphrase that you can memorize. And there's a technique called Diceware, D-I-C-E-W-A-R-E. And if you look this up online, you'll see that you can take a single die or a group of dice and roll them to generate random numbers. And then these random numbers will select words out of a predefined dictionary of 7,776 words. And then uh, what you have is you have a series of words that are random, that nobody can guess, has lots of bits of entropy, and you can use that as a passphrase. So, you know, there's a debate about how many words do you need to memorize for a really good passphrase. And some people say for brain wallets, you probably need eight. And I personally think you need 10. So, um, so that's the, those are the basics. Now, I want to shock you and scare you with all the things that are bad. <laughs> because there's some dangers here if you don't do it correctly. So, the first one is about weak passphrases. And so, what I just described with Diceware, um, that's a way to generate truly random, sufficiently high bits of entropy um, um, passphrases. Mm -hmm. But a weak passphrase is, happens when people are confused with how random something looks with how random the output is. So, if your input's not big enough, then the number of possible SHA-256 hashes that it generates is not big enough either, and an attacker can try a brute force attack on known passwords. Um, and actually, passwords uh, attackers have these things that they use that are called rainbow tables. And a rainbow table is basically a big dictionary of passwords and passphrases that people use. You remember the target um, hack that occurred and you know all that was stolen was a bunch of passwords? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm pretty sure those passwords made their ways into, into uh, rainbow tables. Yeah. And so, you know, an attacker, all they need to do is to try a passphrase, generate, you know, run SHA-256, generate the corresponding public address, check to see if there's any Bitcoin in it, and if there is, sweep it out. And so there are bots that are running out there, there's, there's algorithms that are running in the background that are just randomly trying different passphrases, and, um, and I'm saying they're trying obvious weak passphrases, and they are generating addresses and seeing if there's anything there. So it's fair to say that there are people here on the planet that are sitting in their basement, probably their parents' basements, smoking weed all day long, and they're just trying to guess passphrases with the idea that maybe they'll come upon a passphrase that is a Bitcoin wallet that has a bunch of Bitcoin in it, right? Yeah, that's right. That's what they'll try. Uh, people people are working on this kind of thing. And then, you know, you've probably seen the, the famous XKCD comic that tries to explain, you know, strength of passwords and so forth, oh, and yeah. it's the correct, correct horse battery staple. Well... <laughs> Those are four random words, but once they're online and on the internet, that is no longer secure. And as a matter of fact, if you send, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a few millibits to 
correct horse battery staple brain wallet, it'll be gone in a few minutes. Right. So, you know, that's one thing. But then the other thing is people think they're going to be cute. They're going to try this fancy word called obfuscation. So instead of using the word password, they're going to say, oh, I'm going to use P ampersand dollar sign dollar sign W zero RD. And it looks like password, but it's not password. And nobody will be clever enough to think of that but me. Mm -hmm. Well, do not think that you're smarter than attackers <laughs> because all of these obfuscations, they're already in the rainbow tables. So, you know, if you believe that you've come up with some brilliant obfuscation, remember, there are billions of people on Earth and someone will probably think of that same brilliant idea. I used to think that I could be brilliant in this regard. I don't think that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, also, though, isn't it possible to use words that don't exist at all, a long word, you know, something like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Of course, I would not recommend that one. But if you had a single word that was that long, and let's say it was 30 separate characters long, and you had a couple of underlines in there, Seems that that might work. That could, if you've got sufficient number of characters where you're using capital, lowercase, special characters, and you have enough of those things, and they're truly random, then you know you've got a chance at uh, at having something that has sufficient entropy. Mm -hmm. The other problem is remembering it is a problem. Right. That's actually the next thing that's a danger, and that's forgetting something. Um, and this one's obvious. I mean, if we don't if we don't keep it fresh in our minds, you're going to forget it. As we get older, we're going to forget stuff. Mm -hmm. So. What some people believe they need to do is to, to create some physical documentation of their brain wallet passphrase and keep it deeply hidden. And while that's not in the spirit of true brain wallet, because, you know, a true brain wallet's only in your brain, um, you know, it might be a prudent thing to do to just provide yourself some of that backup. Absolutely. Of course, you touched on this other one, which is the known content danger. And so just because um, any long passphrase uh, can be hashed does not make it a good passphrase, because even though the SHA-256 hash of that passphrase looks random, it may not be random. So people think, oh, I'm going to take a paragraph from some obscure book, or I'm going to take, um, you know, every third word from the Bible, or I'm going to take every nth word, which is represented by the Fibonacci series of some other book. <laughs> well, you know what? Eventually, these things are going to get programmed by these bots, and I wouldn't try that. Uh, you know, my, my strong advice is if you're going to use brain wallets, your passphrases have to be big, which means lots of bits of entropy, and they have to be random. And then there's the last one, the last danger, and that's incapacitation or death. Hmm. So what's your plan for your family? Um, and so there's been some discussions that I've read online where people are talking about these automated dead drops where, um, you know, if something happens, uh, somebody is alerted to do something and it triggers um, some documentation revealed to family members. Uh, I also believe that as smart contracts continue to emerge, there will be smart wills that we can have scripts attached to uh, my money so that in the event that I do die and it's provable somehow um, that the, the money is uh, appropriately uh, dealt with. But yeah. given that I just play with this stuff with very tiny sums, I'm not worried about this. For me, it's more of a of a learning and exploration and intellectual challenge um, aspect. Right, but it's important to think about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. you got to think about that. That's the same thing if you have, I don't mean to offend anybody, but if you're dumb enough to have your gold hidden in your backyard, it's the same thing. If you die, if no one else knows about it, the gold is going to probably stay there forever, and no one's going to get it, and you might want your family to have it. Yeah, actually, that's a great that's a great analogy, the physical gold, because if I can extend that a bit, with your permission, I would say, 
that I've buried some gold someplace on earth <laughs> and I know where it is. Nobody else knows where it is. So I've got a good gold brain wallet. So yeah. what happens if you die? What happens if you forget? And you know, and the only thing you have to remember was the lat long on your GPS, right? Well, you may not remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think there is another danger. I don't know if you were going to touch on this or not. And it's in the future. If everybody knows that everybody else has a brain wallet, well, you know, it's not that hard for somebody to capture you, right? And beat the, <laughs> how many smacks with a baseball bat up against your leg before you'd release your brain wallet info? You know, for me, it'd probably be one smack, you know, that you can take my point to Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's also a possibility of brain damage with that first smack. So, you yeah. know, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why there's, that, that's why they start out with your feet or whatever. But yeah, so that, yeah. that definitely is a danger in the future. There's also, you know, people have talked about, you can access your car in the future or your house with a thumbprint like that's ridiculous don't you want to make it that it can only access it with a living thumbprint as opposed to the thumb that they cut off and they take it over yeah. to your house and they use that we've seen things like that in movies there was one with sean penn the guy takes the guy up on the top of the roof and uh, in this freezer that they have up there i think they're keeping beers in the refrigerator but in the freezer they have these hands that they cut off of somebody yeah. that they're using <laughs> for these crimes for the fingerprints and all these crimes they commit but anyway crazy stuff but yeah so the dangers sound very real for brain wallets dangers do sound real so i mean and again i personally don't have hardly anything in a brain wallet i'm doing it for learning purposes but if i if i did well then what i want to do is i'd want to have another brain wallet with just some trace elements in there so that that's what i divulge it's sort of a deniability thing but now you got to remember two different random high entry <laughs> passphrases and it, it begins to get out of hand. Right. Well, I would say there's there's one additional topic and this, you know, I don't know that this is advanced brain wallet uh, thought process, but it's something that I've been thinking about and I've seen some, some elements of it uh, written. And that's this notion of a deterministic series of brain wallets. So starting with one high entropy memorized random passphrase, you generate a private key and then you add some salt to that private key Salt is, a, is some additional passphrase element that you can add to it. Mm -hmm. And then take the SHA-256 of that to generate another private key. And so now you can think of being able to create a deterministic string of uh, private keys that, um, that you can eventually regenerate all from the first uh, brain wallet. But for those kinds mm -hmm. of things, you know, I'd, I'd stick with some of the standard BIP39 processes that, that have these uh, passphrases that allow you to create these hierarchical deterministic wallets. So there's techniques that are focused on HD wallets that I think may someday provide some better flexibility for brain wallets. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. You know, I remember when I was first trying to get a brain wallet and trying to figure out, okay, what kind of phrase do I want to use? You know, I came up with a phrase that I feel is random and crazy and all these little characters, but that's pretty easy for me to remember. But can you give an example, a mock example of a brain wallet that someone could actually use that you would consider safe? Obviously, you're not going to give us a real brain wallet one. And obviously, whoever hears this is not going to be using it after this. I would hope not. But just, yeah, just an example. Um, all right, uh, chair, plug, um, window, kumquat, four of hearts, second hand, uh, magic, pencil, and I would also in that sequence, uh, you know, use appropriate uh, capitalization and um, alternating other things. And so, you know, that's that is a series of words that I try to rattle off randomly and probably wouldn't be guessed mm -hmm. but back to the principles of what makes a very strong passphrase it's got to be random mm -hmm. and it's got to be original 
uh, if it's going to be a unique thing um, that's only known to you, and it's got to be long so that it, it cannot be guessed through brute force. So I think that kind of brings us back to the original two truths that we started with, which is number one, you know, don't use brain wallets because they are very dangerous and you're going to lose your money. And the second truth is they are very powerful when used correctly. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, you really have to decide whether it's right for you, whether it's part of your storage solution, whether it's part of your family solution. But again, as I said, my own personal learning that has occurred in the exploration of brain wallets has been fascinating. It's been, it's been excellent. I've had to find answers to questions that were in my mind that I would have never stumbled upon those aspects of Bitcoin had I not gone searching for these obscure things. So it's a, it's a fascinating topic. It's a dangerous topic, but it's, um, it's one that we need to understand. I agree. Okay, so let's say that somebody wants to, they have their family wealth and they have to leave the country quickly. They know they have 24 hours before they're going to be on a plane and in another country, but they know they can't take their wealth with them. But they're able to convert their wealth into Bitcoin. They do that, and then they want to store it on a brain wallet so that they can enter that new country with all of their wealth. Let's say it's $100,000, and they have all of their wealth in their brain wallet. So they have to do this pretty quickly. They have 24 hours to do this. And let's say they have their Bitcoin in a paper wallet. How are they going to get that from the paper wallet into the brain wallet in 24 hours? So maybe they'd want to start with bitaddress.org as I did. Obviously, you don't want to be generating that while your computer is online. Now, why do you not want to do that? Is that because you're afraid of keyloggers? Are you afraid of Trojans in your computer that are watching your every move? What, what is the reason why you would want to generate your brain wallet from an offline computer? And how do you do that? Um, so you can download the uh, HTML source code. From these websites, they will provide you with a link to the GitHub repository where you can download it onto your computer. I would then take that to an offline computer, um, open up those um, HTML files in a browser, and it will have you'll have the exact same experience as if you were online because everything's running um, in JavaScript in the browser. And from there, there are no keyloggers that can communicate anything. There's no Trojan horses that can communicate anything. And so you have the confidence that if it's the first time you've entered this passphrase, that um, no one can have access to it. So that's that's the first step to do is to generate um, a, uh, a good passphrase and the associated private key. Let's back up one second. So you want to copy the HTML code. Where are you copying that? Are you copying that onto a thumb drive? Yeah, that's what I would do is I take it from my connected computer to a not connected computer and then just open up that HTML file in a local browser that's not connected and the actual website behaves the same because it's running in, um, in the JavaScript um, in the browser. How do you know when you are copying that HTML code and putting it onto your thumb drive? How do you know that in that process, because you're still on an online computer, how do you know that something bad isn't happening in that process, something that's going to compromise your thumb drive, let's say? You know, because this is uh, access from the GitHub repository, uh, they provide you with the digital signatures of the file that you're downloading so that you can check to see after you've moved it to your um, to your disconnected computer, you can check to see whether the file generates the same, uh, the same signature. And so um, I'm not personally, um, you know, very skilled at doing that. Um, 
And because I'm not playing with any serious money, that has been not a big concern for me. But if I ever was to do that, um, I would um, figure out how to do that validation um, as step one. Now, back to your analogy, um, example of how does a person do this quickly, I would um, also use a um, random large passphrase, and I would spend the time that I had memorizing that passphrase mm-hmm. and keeping it fresh in my mind and maybe uh, taking those random words and uh, let's say 10 random words and building a little melody of those 10 random words. I'd even teach my family members um, who travel with me to keep the 10 random words in our in our minds. Mm-hmm. And so then the question of how do you get your paper wallet, you use either your mycelium app on your phone or your or your circle app or whatever app you use or your hardware wallets or your armory or other wallet management systems and you basically sweep your paper wallet and transfer all that into the private key that is associated with your passphrase and that's it now it's in your brain and access no matter where you travel how would you get it to your private key you create your passphrase that you're going to memorize that's your brain wallet when you put that into bitaddress.org that's going to generate basically a key pair it's going to give you a private key and your public address, mm-hmm. and then you sweep your paper wallet into whatever wallet system you use to sign transactions, and then you send it to that address that's generated from your passphrase. Using your offline computer, when you create this Bitcoin brain wallet, I assume that when it gives you the private key and the public key, it would also give you a QR code, because otherwise, how can you get it to your private key without typing in somewhere the entire private key when you say sweep it? Yeah, you're right. It does generate a QR code for you. It also gives you the hex representation as well that you can type in manually, but you, you do get QR codes that you can use to send to. Okay, so you'd basically be sending it to that brain wallet from your paper wallet or from wherever you had it. You could have it online. You could have it somewhere else. You could have it in in an exchange maybe, which is not the best idea, obviously, if it was your family wealth. Um, So, yeah, you sweep it there to the brain wallet, and you have it in the brain wallet. And then I leave the country, and I feel safe. You know, an hour later, they storm my house, (laughs) and they ransack it, and they torch it, and they raise it. They burn it to the ground. And there's nothing there. Those bastards. They, yeah, yeah, after they've thoroughly searched it, and there's nothing. Sergeant, there's nothing here. We found nothing. <laughs> I'm on the flight with my family, and then I land in wherever, Istanbul, and uh, I have to retrieve that money in some way using my brain wallet. But let's say that I wasn't able to bring a computer with me, and I wasn't able to, um, you know, bring a smartphone with me. I've got to find now some kind of Internet cafe, and then the difficult thing is, okay, wait, I don't want to dump all of this to sweep all of this $100,000 worth of bitcoins from my brain wallet, you know, in an internet cafe in Istanbul, uh, you know, what am I going to do? How can I get that $100,000 and how can I get it back in small pieces if I choose to, or get it back all at once and safely put it somewhere else? I know these are crazy, complicated questions. It's a crazy, complicated scenario, but I sure don't have the answers. Yeah. Well, in that case, um, you know, I think the the primary objective of this scenario was get the hell out of the country. Right. Um, and so now that I am out safely with the money in a brain wallet, I would uh, take the necessary time to acquire a smartphone and and get mm-hmm. a an app like Mycelium that I could then uh, find uh, an internet access point that I could trust mm-hmm. to put the money in. Um, or if I get my hands on a hardware wallet um, mm-hmm. like um, 
like Trezor yeah. or other other devices, I can pull that into into that device as well. And so, um, but you know, this the the interesting thing about the question that you asked was if I only had twenty four hours to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out your listeners have a lot more than twenty four hours to do that. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> yeah, but no. But the, the issue is that you can play with this now yeah. with. Actually, not even put any money into it, but just play with it now to go to Diceware, go to the site that has Diceware on it, generate 10 random words, memorize those words, and keep them in your brain. And the way that I keep passphrases in my brain, uh, a 10-word passphrase, when I do exercise and I'm doing reps with a set of weights, instead of counting from 1 to 10, I mentally say the words to myself so that I don't forget them. If I'm walking, I count the words as I'm walking. There are many opportunities through the course of your day where your brain's not doing anything. Might as well have it remember its passphrase so yeah. that if you do have 24 hours to get out of the country, then the passphrase is there. And then it's just a matter of putting the money into it. Right. The passphrase is there. It's a matter of getting the money into it. You're still going to have to get to a computer, right? Yes, that's correct. Right. Because you can't, you can't actually send from a mycelium wallet or any wallet. You can't actually send bitcoin to a passphrase so now let's say that you do take your time and things are going well and you've got a little bit of money to get a a smartphone or mycelium wallet or you get to a computer that you trust there in istanbul and you want to retrieve your bitcoin from the brain wallet and all you have is the passphrase you still have to get to a computer of some sort that can do this by way of the sha 256 right that's right so you know access to bitaddress.org um, or bitcoinpaperwallet.com um, that will provide you everything you need to generate um, the um, the public address and the private key so that you can then uh, use another device like a hardware wallet or a smartphone to have access to that. I remember that's what I did um, after I had created this Bitcoin wallet. The very first one, I think I tried, I sent like, I don't know, 50 cents worth of Bitcoin to it. And I wanted to know if it worked or not, right? That was my main right. objective. So what did I do? I went back online. I'd done everything offline, went back yep. online to bitaddress.org, and I put that in. And lo and behold, it gave me a private and a public key. And that's where the Bitcoin was. And I thought, wow, success. This is so cool. So I proved to myself that the brain wallet actually worked. And it did really feel knowing that I had succeeded in, you know, storing a small amount of Bitcoin in the brain wallet and then retrieving that Bitcoin from the brain wallet. It was really quite thrilling. For the first time in my life, I felt like James Bond. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. The old James Bond, not the new guy who's, you know, (laughs) rough and ready and mean and never smiles and never cracks a joke and and who's actually (laughs) pathetic. Hopefully there'll be some brain wallets and Bitcoins in the next Bond movie. That would be so cool. Yeah, I think we're going to start seeing this in movies, Bitcoins and digital currencies. That's going to be pretty exciting to see. But this is fascinating stuff, man. I know that for any listener who's listening who has never heard of a brain wallet before, they're probably sitting back and their brains melted or exploded or something. (laughs) They have no idea what we're still there like. I can't even believe this is possible. Um, But then for listeners who've been wondering about it and always wanted to try it, I think there are going to be people listening to this episode and then going to bitaddress.org or wherever and trying it. You know, the other thing that I remember when I was first creating that brain wallet was my fear that as I copied that HTML code onto a thumb drive and took it to a different computer offline, my fear was that it wasn't really bitaddress.org because I don't have the 
technical prowess, the technical knowledge to be able to verify that, yes, this comes from GitHub, and yes, this is real. Um, how did I know it wasn't just a website where instead of random numbers being generated, it was actually just generating key pairs that were already in a database, right? Yeah. And it would generate, <laughs> let's say over the next five years, it would generate millions of them, you know? And then when the person decided, hey, it's, I think it's about time now, they just, you know, cash it all in because they'd already have those in the database. So that was my fear, was trusting that bitaddress.org was really giving me offline random numbers as opposed to just drawing from this database. Well, there, there is a way you can test that. And, and actually, I, I forgot to mention this. This is one of the things that I did to validate to myself, even though I didn't go do the full digital signature validation. Mm -hmm. You can find um, lots of online SHA-256 calculators where you just put in a passphrase and it generates the output. What I did is I just went to um, bitaddress.org mm -hmm. and also to bitcoinpaperwallet.com and to the SHA-256 calculator, and I tried all three of them with a, a series of different passphrases to see whether all three of them generated the same random output. Mm -hmm. And I did a bunch of gibberish that I copied and pasted uh, across all three, and every single one of them generated the same output. And so that was, um, I kind of got more trust in them. Hmm. But as I said, if I was going to do this for some serious money, I would actually um, go and figure out how to do the full digital signature validation process as well. Yeah, you'd have to, really, if it was your family wealth. I mean, yeah, you'd be crazy not to. So, yeah, this is exciting stuff. So, listeners, hey, you can create your own brain wallet today, and if you want to, you can leave it empty, right? That's right. Keep your brain wallet empty for a rainy day in case you need it, or, you know, put five or ten bucks there, and then you can go online, you can go to blockchain.info, and you can check that Bitcoin address and say, yeah, you know, this week, next week, the week after, my $10 in Bitcoin is still there, right, in that wallet. Yep. Right? So, yeah, this is exciting stuff, man. Nick, thanks so much for taking time to be on Bitcoins and Gravy and to talk about brain wallets. Can you give us some closing words? At its simplest level, a brain wallet is a way in which you can derive a private key from stuff that only you know, that's safely tucked away in your brain. And as I said early on, the two truths about brain wallets are that, number one, they are fraught with danger and you shouldn't use them. And number two, they are really powerful. And if you use them correctly, they're very safe and secure. <laughs> so, you know, it provides uh, not only intellectual challenge and a great learning opportunity, but it also is personal freedom in the long run. And I think it's worth knowing, worth knowing how to use and just being aware of it so that um, if and when the time comes, you have that at your disposal. Man, I love it. That is great stuff. This is, uh, I think this has been the best explanation for brain wallets that I've heard ever. And I think that Nick Pudar, I think that you should write the definitive handbook on creating Bitcoin brain wallets. And uh, I would not be surprised if you sold them like hotcakes. Hey, man, if you create that, I'll sell them like hotcakes on Bitcoins and gravy for 10%. <laughs> Just send me your public address. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, man. It's as easy as that. Hey, Nick, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, for taking time to explain all of this to us. This is great stuff, man. It was my pleasure, John. Thanks so much. Yeah, you take care. Say hey to Detroit for me. Thank you very much. And, I, and again, I got to tell you, the first time you said you were going to have somebody to talk about brain wallets, my reaction was, awesome. I can't <laughs> wait for that one. <laughs> Thanks a million, Nick. Take care, man. Bye-bye. All right, bye. The Song of Ashok by Max Hernandez. Ashok squatted in the early morning sun, surrounded by indifferent strangers. 
rocking back and forth on his heels, he hummed under his breath. In his mind, he matched words to the melody, touching each in turn to comfort his soul. Together they were his family and his wealth. And soon he knew they would be his survival. In front of him a dirt road cut across his field of vision like a line in the sand. Beyond it, marked only by a fetid stream, was the border, and on the other side of that a fenced camp. The Red Cross would be there with clean water and rice gruel. For a boy who hadn't eaten for five days, such things were miracles. Perhaps he would even get to wash, but not leave. If he crossed the border, they would make him stay in that camp, locked behind a fence as if he had committed a crime. Still, the world outside would be free and he could have visitors. That would be good enough for his plans. On this side of the creek, no one stopped him from crossing. In fact, there wasn't a soldier in sight. It was too early. But if he wanted to get into that camp, he would have to wait for them. Only they could issue exit visas and, without one, the guards on the other side would only drive him back. So he shifted his position and waited in the growing heat and flies. A tall weed in a grown man's jacket, he tried to ignore the throbbing infection in his arm and the cramping in his abdomen. Fortunately, the piece of canvas that he had wrapped around his waist to hide his nakedness could easily be pulled aside to avoid soiling himself. The coat and shirt were his only garments. Not long ago, he had also worn shoes. They had been too large and hard to walk in, but they did protect his feet. Yesterday, someone bigger had claimed a greater need, so now he walked barefoot. He once had dollars, too, and a gold chain. When they left his village, his mother gave him both to carry in secret. But they were gone now, like his original clothes, taken during one of the beatings he had occasionally received over the past two weeks. The chain had been hidden where no one should ever have found it, but his attackers had probed him deeply and taken everything but his dysentery. And his song. They had left him with that because he had never mentioned that he had it. Not even when they hit him. His father had taught him well. It helped that they didn't try very hard. Why should they? How could they know of the wealth that a small boy could keep hidden in his mind? His father had forged the words and his mother had put them to melody. Only a few dozen lines, it spoke of his family, his home, and hope. Some pieces had small value, but others could buy him the world. When he wrote a part of it on paper, he always did it the same way, without punctuation or capitalization. If he wrote only a single line, he always ended it in exactly the same place. Written like that, each verse looked like a small thing, but in his mind, viewed together, the song had grandeur, scope, and deep emotional meaning. It was the symphony of his salvation, the memory of his mother singing it as she baked bread, or his father trading its lines with him as they sat alone in his office hiding from the midday heat. 
Now it might be the only thing he would ever have to remind him of the love that once bound them together. He lost track of his mother and two younger sisters sometime after his first beating. One minute they were there, a constant part of his world, and then they were gone, spirited away in the dark, taken from his mind's eye without him even noticing the event. Not so his father. They took him during the business day when the sun was high and everyone rested in the shade. It was just a tax matter, they said. He would be back that evening, but he never returned. Three days later, the killing started. Shortly after that, his mother made them leave. His father had been a tall man, thin and tough and smart, a merchant. He was wealthy by local standards. When things began to go bad, he composed the words and made Ashok memorize them. Then he taught the boy how to use them and made him understand how critical it was to never talk of them to anyone. Known only to his father, his mother, and himself, they must always remain a secret. Always. Because the song was a powerful genie, living to serve the family, willing to work tirelessly for him, his sisters, and his parents, if anyone else even suspected its existence, the magic would leave forever. Later this morning, he would probably be allowed to cross. If so, then tomorrow he would find a way to get online. There he would break off a small piece of his song and use it to put a coded message in the blockchain. Like a homing pigeon, it would fly across the world to every node, shouting in a voice that only a singer of his song could understand. Ashok lives, it would say to his family. Tell me where you are, and I will come for you. Then he would break off another piece and turn it into money for fresh vegetables and a doctor to tend his arm. Next week, he would have a cool place to sleep, maybe not in a soft bed, but at least out of the dust. And most importantly, he would have investigators working for him, paid to look for his family. After tomorrow, he would have whatever he needed. Because even in a refugee camp, a boy with money is more than just a boy. And the author's note from Max Hernandez, Bitcoin has a provision for storing private keys in the form of easily memorizable phrases. Everything about it, including punctuation, spacing, and capitalization, must be exactly the same each time it is used. These phrases can be strung together to make a multi-key mental wallet, taking advantage of the use of rhyme and music to make the individual phrases easy to remember. By memorizing such a wallet, a person could transport wealth in the form of Bitcoin anywhere and be able to access only a part of it without having to worry about theft of the rest. In the Bitcoin world, these phrases or collections of phrases are called brain wallets. A brain wallet phrase can also be used to embed an encrypted message in the blockchain. Then anyone, anywhere can read it as long as he or she has access to a Bitcoin node and the private key to decode it. Ashok plans to contact any surviving members of his family by posting this kind of message. The idea of memory systems such as brain wallets has been around longer than cryptocurrencies or even computers. Code poems were used during World War II to allow Allied agents to communicate with London from inside occupied Europe. 
there is an interesting description of how they worked in the excellent autobiography Between Silk and Cyanide by Leo Marx. I recommend it to anyone who is interested in the subject as well as an excellent description of the more modern Bitcoin version by James D'Angelo. Listeners, that's it. And for that description by James D'Angelo, please check out the show notes on Let's Talk Bitcoin or on my website, bitcoinsandgravy.com. Thank you, Max Hernandez, so much. Any listener out there who has not read the writings of Max Hernandez, I highly recommend his novel, Thieves Emporium, which will knock your socks off. And it is riveting. You will not be able to put it down. And it's very easy to find on Amazon.com. And listeners, if you'd like to talk with Max Hernandez, it's very easy. Just go to the comments section for this episode number 67 of Bitcoins and Gravy there at Let's Talk Bitcoin. Max, I am sure, would be thrilled to hear your comments about his story and to answer any questions you may have. Max Hernandez, thank you so much once again, sir. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Carrie, and I'm here to tell you about something really powerful that's happening. Nepal recently suffered a tragic earthquake. Thousands of lives were lost, and people around the world are wanting to help. Fortunately, Red Cross has opened a Bitcoin wallet with ChangeTip and is now accepting Bitcoin donations. In just a matter of days, thousands of dollars have poured into this account, turning Bitcoins into food and supplies for those in need. With ChangeTip, we can send Bitcoins through Twitter and use our social platforms to build momentum towards giving. We can give any amount, no matter how small, and together, it really adds up. So to open an account, go to changetip.com. There you can buy Bitcoins or transfer from your Bitcoin wallet. Start giving, and if you want, redirect the gifts people give you to go to Red Cross. Let's use these amazing tools we've created to pull each other up and show the world the value of Bitcoin through generosity. I know that it may sound completely and utterly absurd, but I have for you a magic word. And today the magic word is brain. B-R-A-I-N. Brain. As in the sentence, When I first heard about brain wallets, my brain nearly exploded. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things ought to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. A Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain. A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Our bit- 
Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain. Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny A Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name, sing it Oh Lord, pass me some more And I'd like to thank my guest on today's show, Brainiac Nick Pudar, who was kind enough to take the time to walk us step-by-step through how to create and use a brain wallet. And I would be remiss in my duties if I did not thank Nick for giving me the name for my new band, Jupiter Water Balloon. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, live in concert this Friday at the Nashville Auditorium, Jupiter Water Balloon. And much thanks also to my good friend, author Max Hernandez, for sharing with us his newest work of short fiction, The Song of Ashok. Max, we look forward to many more excellent writings about Bitcoin and all related topics. And great news, listeners, our transcription page is now live on the website thanks to the continuing hard work of one of our loyal listeners who is also a consultant to the show. These professional transcriptions are provided by one of our fans who can be found at diaryofafreelancetranscriptionist.com. And of course, you can find a link to this website in the weekly show notes. And if you've enjoyed the show, please take a minute to scan my QR code or copy my public key and send me 50 cents in Bitcoin. If you'll do this every once in a while, it will help me out more than you know. Folks, it's not easy being a podcast host, trust me, and putting in 10 hours each week to produce the show sometimes takes its toll. Remember that giving someone a small tip in Bitcoin is what makes Bitcoin folks stand out in this world. I know personally that whenever I give a tip to someone on Reddit or Let's Talk Bitcoin or one of the forums, I feel better about myself knowing that I've given back just a little to help that person continue creating great content. And signing off now from East Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host, John Barrett, here with my dog, Maxwell. Say goodbye, Maxwell. 
Join us again next week for another episode of Bitcoins and Gravy. And until then, y'all be good to each other out there. And remember, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Do something, y'all.